0: Welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheetham. Uh Today we are coming at you with a little bit of a different medium. Um, we're going to be doing video today um, as we'll be broadening our platforms. We're, we're doing audio. Uh, we have an Anchor, Apple Podcasts, as well as some others, but um, we're going to start posting on YouTube more in addition to that. So you might see more of our faces. Um sure. <laughs> A little bit more here, um, but yeah. So today, our topic—we're uh, going to—we're continuing our study in the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. We're going to be going through Chapter Eight of Christ the Mediator. Um, so we're going to be talking about the person of Christ and His work. Um, but Sean, if you want to introduce our topic for us, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, exactly. So as Dan said, this uh, chapter is titled "On Christ the Mediator." It goes into who he is um, and how that uh, qualifies him for the office of mediator and what are the functions that Christ actually performs as our mediator. And we're going into this today because it's actually extremely important to get who Christ is and what he has done right. Absolutely. Um, That's prime ground for getting into a false gospel if you start getting these core issues wrong. Um, oh, you see has, that,
0: too, with, like, Mormons and, and Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses. Exactly. Um Once they, they denied uh, the biblical Christ, then the rest of their theology tends to follow with it.
1: Exactly, yeah. Um, so this is actually quite an important chapter. Not to say that there aren't important chapters, but uh, some are more important than others. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, this goes to, I mean, if we, like you said, if we get this wrong, we get the gospel wrong. Because the gospel... At the, its core is about Christ and his work. So exactly, that's absolutely it, right.
1: It's good news. And that good news is about Christ and what he has done. So yes. make sure to be right on that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we're going we're gonna to not go through each paragraph today. Uh, we picked some uh, paragraphs we think we should focus on. So we'll start with paragraph two. Um, and I'll go ahead and read that. It says, The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things He hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the city of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that the whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So we see here kind of an overview of uh, not only of who Christ is and his natures, but his coming. Um, and we see that uh, Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. Um, he wasn't just some random person that showed up on the scene um, and that did many good things, as, as some espouse today. No, he was predicted. He was prophesied to come. He was, um, he was the core of God's plan of redemption or the Trinity's plan of redemption, um, that he would come and die live a perfect life, die for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he would come of uh, the seed of Abraham and of the line of David. He would come and and sit on an eternal throne um, in succession of David. So uh, we start to see that here.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people might... you, You find a lot in mainstream evangelicalism of people who... Uh, don't necessarily want to get specific about who Jesus is. It's like, well, is it enough that I believe in Jesus? Do I have to believe all these very specific things about And we're not necessarily saying you need to know uh, things like what the word hypostatic union, or the phrase hypostatic union means to be saved. Right. But uh, a lot of these details are actually important. Um, Jesus tells us um, in John that... um, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Uh, Mm -hmm. The I am there being a reference to God's name as revealed in Exodus, uh, where he reveals his name as the I am, I am that I am. Uh, If you don't believe that Jesus is God, Jesus is telling you uh, that you will not be saved. Now, in context, he's speaking to the Jews, but um, I do see that as a um, more universal application. You need to believe in who he is. And as we... um, get through more of the chapter it'll it'll become clear the specifics about why you need to believe that but uh, at the very least jesus flat out tells you uh you must believe this in order to be saved
0: yeah i can't remember where um i know it's in first john and uh, you can point out the passage to me if you know it but he says that unless you know those who deny that jesus is the christ that they are they have the spirit of an antichrist
1: yeah so um, it's, it's funny i actually had that called up because i figured I would end up reading it. Um, (laughs) It's from 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist um so here this is actually uh, emphasizing his humanity right that he came in the flesh it's not that merely that jesus was some divine being he was also man he's both and that is incredibly important and here john and first john lets us know that not only are you an unbeliever um if you have if you profess this teaching he actually goes as far to say that you have the spirit of antichrist you are 100 percent opposed to christ uh which again this is this is why uh we need to take these things seriously about uh who christ is um because as god's word reveals to us this this is very serious
0: yeah that's exactly right and i i think that's one reason why the early church was so meticulous about being correct on who jesus was i mean um in I know we're going to talk, I guess we can talk about this now, but the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, um, there was this desire to be right about who Christ was. Now, um, Constantine was the one who called the, uh, the Council of Nicaea, and we know that his motives probably were more political than they were spiritual. Um, he wanted to ensure that his kingdom was unified. Um, and with the church state being mixed during this time, um it was important to to ensure that those who ruled the church at the time were unified uh, because it had effects politically but um we know that it was a struggle in the church at the time they were struggling over who christ was was he actually one with the father or was he different The father and respond i think they were responding to Arius, if i remember yeah um you know was jesus of the same substance as the father homo or was he of similar substance homo Mm-hmm. Um And the, uh, thankfully, they came down um, to holding the biblical doctrine that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father in His divine nature, um, but also having a a um, a the body of a man. He, he was truly man, as it says in the Confession. It says He was uh, which person is very God and very man. So He was one hundred percent man and one hundred percent God um, without mixing. The two. Um, so when we see passages like in John one that talk about Jesus becoming a man, we can't take those to mean that Jesus um, actually changed in his divine nature to become anything less than he was. He simply assumed human flesh, exactly. um, and that's where we get the doctrine of the hypostatic union from. Because uh, if once we ascribe change to the divine nature, then Jesus is now changing in uh, and is no longer a simple being pure act he's able to submit to something outside of himself in this case his creation um which is a has uh, a lot of implications that are problematic
1: yeah exactly if god can change can we rely on his promises um right yeah 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 no it's important as we've said to get uh christ uh right Yep. Uh, Did you want to move on to the uh, next paragraph, or did you have more to say on this?
0: Um, So I wanted to just quickly read um, ARBCA. The Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America has um, a piece that they wrote on divine impassibility, but they talk about the natures, and I'll just read some of this real quick. It says, In the incarnation, the divine nature of the Son did not become human, and the human nature did not become divine. The eternal Son of God became what he once was not, very man, without ceasing to be what he always was, very God. And here it says, herein lies the mystery and wonder of the incarnation that the divine son assumed a passable human nature without any alteration or subjugation of his impassable divine nature. Being united in the person of the Son, both natures maintain their peculiar properties. And that's sometimes where we just have to stop and go, you know, I, I can't explain all of that. Um, but in order to remain within the bounds of scripture, we sometimes we just have to stop in, in, at those words without, and I think this is where like a, the, the heresy of Arianism came from. It was trying to explain it from a human perspective instead of just letting the scriptures speak for themselves. Exactly. I'll just say that in passing.
1: Uh, where can people find that uh, article there, Dan, if they want to read it? Um, it is at, uh, let me see, if
0: you, it's at ARPCA's website. <clears throat> me one second while I pull it up. If you go to ARPCA's website, um, ARPCA.com and you go to resources, um, it's under position papers and it's called a position paper concerning divine impassibility. And there's a link there for the PDF. Um, It's about, I think it's 29 pages. So it's Sorry. lengthy, but um, it has a lot of good stuff. And I'll refer to it again today when we talk about um, the death of Christ, but it, it it has a lot of good article. But if you want to find it, com resources, position papers.
1: Sounds good. All right, in that case, I'll read uh, paragraph four. Sounds good. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrow in his soul, and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he rose from the dead, with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, And there sitteth at the right hand of his father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Uh, Quick, almost side note, before we begin, Um, the first sentence in this paragraph, the office of the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake. That's uh, an important uh, point when you're dealing with Muslims. A lot of Muslims can't understand how we say that we honor Christ when Christ went to this shameful death on the cross. Or you'll have um, a lot of evangelicals that uh, are against um, substitutionary atonement that Jesus underwent the the punishment for us. And um, they'll say that it's it's essentially divine child abuse that God the Father was punishing his son. As if Christ wasn't really. (laughs) uh, These views... Um, don't fundamentally grasp the idea that Jesus did this willingly for us and that should result in praise and his amazing kindness um, rather than um, calling God the Father mean or whatever they would like to say about it. No, Jesus did this willingly for us. Uh, he was righteous and he did not deserve any of it, but he did willingly on our behalf and uh, we owe him due honor for that
0: yeah it's almost as if they're trying to disconnect the unity of the trinity in purpose as if jesus has his own agenda you know over here and then the father has his own agenda over here and jesus is just he has a gun to his head and he's just going to the cross Yeah. No, we, we see christ um talking about doing the will of his father wanting it was his meat and his drink to obey his father um you know yes yes leighton it was out of love as well as law Um, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus did that, um, for us out of love as well, but he also did it out of obedience to his father. Um, yeah, he did it willingly and with perfect submission, even though it wasn't necessarily easy. We see in the garden, Christ having agony that he, he knew what was coming. He knew he was going to be separated from his father. Um, but he still did so out of humble submission and joyful submission to his father, um, but he still struggled with that um, that fleshly part of him, if you will, to use the term very loosely, knowing what was going to come um, spiritually as well as physically. Yes. Um, something else I wanted to point out too, um, well, I guess before I get to that, it, one thing that going back to our, our discussion of Gnosticism right before we started the show, it talks about his body saw no corruption. The third day, he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven and there sitting at the right hand of his Father. So, Jesus didn't somehow have some third bot you know out of body experience um, after he rose from the dead. It's not like his body stayed in the tomb and he just ascended with his spirit into heaven. No, his body was resurrected and glorified, um, and, and that's how he is now. Paul says in Colossians that the fullness of deity dwells in christ now bodily so jesus is still is in heaven now as a man um still unified in the hypostatic union interceding on our behalf
1: exactly he has his glorified human body but he is still human just as when we have our glorified human bodies we will still be human
0: yes that's exactly right so that that flies in the face of gnosticism which says that Um, the the body, the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. We say, no, that the body is good. There's a resurrection of the body, not from the body. Um, So that, that's just something in passing. And they actually emphasize very clearly in, in this, uh, this paragraph. Um, But really quick. um, One thing I want to talk about a little bit with regards to the doctrine of divine impassibility, excuse me, as it relates to Christ's suffering. Um, one thing that we confess as uh, as reformed and confessional is that christ only suffered in his um his human flesh he did not suffer as god in his divine nature um and i think that's something to to remember that when there was no suffering given to his divine nature even though they were unified in one person um it was only his his human nature that suffered on the cross and his divine nature sustained him to be able to handle the eternal wrath of God because Jesus's uh, divine nature was not in co- or, or the divine was not in question in terms of what needed to be satisfied to fulfill God's law a man had to die not God it wouldn't have actually solved anything even if Jesus did suffer in his divine nature um, but his divine nature sustained his human nature to be able to withstand um, the eternal wrath of God, which no mere man could. Um, so I think that's important to note in passing. And that's also in the article um, that I read from Arbka. Um, Some very good points there. One that's not necessarily, I don't think, talked about. And I don't know if anyone would actually say that Jesus suffered in his divinity. I don't think I've heard anyone say that explicitly, maybe implied it, but it's something to, to keep in mind um, as we uphold divine simplicity, um, at, but still understanding that Jesus really did suffer for our sins according to the law.
1: Yeah, and that, that does ultimately get to why Jesus needs to be a man, and thus why you need to believe that Jesus was truly man, because only a man, to quote Shylin here, only a man can substitute for human lives. Or maybe it was only a human can substitute for human lives. But that's the point. If Christ is going to undergo our punishment, uh, he has to be a man. For example, you couldn't go into a courtroom where a a judge had levied a jail sentence on you and been like, oh, uh, my puppy will take the jail sentence for me. You know, it's it's not these things aren't equivalent. Human has to suffer for human sins. Uh, nothing else will do. Um, so, if you believe in a Jesus who is different, uh, who's not a a man, then that Jesus can't save you. You believe in a Jesus that can't save you.
0: That's right. Yep. Because he he really wouldn't have fulfilled the law at that point. Then God the Father really isn't just. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's amazing. Even these little details of like divine impassibility that you wouldn't normally think about are ultimately consistent with God's justice, even down to the minutest detail, God's justice is maintained in, in the death of Christ. So it's, it's, we serve a a great God who is righteous and just and and will not cut corners, if you will, um, for his people. He maintains his character while paying for the sins of his people. Exactly. All right. uh, Moving on to paragraph six says although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation yet the virtue efficacy and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successfully successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises types and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday today, and forever. Um, so this flies um, flat on the face of dispensationalism, which teaches that Christ um, or that God has two plans of redemption, so to speak, one for Old Testament saints, and then another for um, New Testament saints. You know, the Old Testament saints were saved by, you know, covenant works, if you will. And then the New Testament saints were saved by faith. Um, this says, no, that they were saved the same exact way, Um, just looking forward to that which was to come
1: yeah exactly um and you even get some dispensationalists that'll say jews today are able to be saved by keeping the mosaic law which um so you have two plans of salvation working out concurrently and that obviously leads to some major problems because we know that no one can keep the law perfectly and keeping part of it isn't gonna save you um james says uh where is it for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point he is guilty of all Mm -hmm. um you're not that goes to the heart of justification right there um how are you made right with god it's like well i kept most of the law no no that's, that's not sufficient the law is a unit you can't say oh yeah i got most of it the the promise of life is attached to keeping the entirety of the law and not failing at any point um so that's that's very dangerous um and we should not be evangelizing um jews by saying oh yeah just keep the law you'll be fine that's that's, that's yeah that's,
0: that's dangerous bad. um yeah i mean you look in romans paul is very clear that both jew and gentile are both condemned under the law and mm-hmm. that None is righteous, including the Jews, and that they're all in need of the same gospel, the same work of Christ. So, yeah, to say something like that—that that I would even, I would venture to say—that's heretical. If you're gonna, yeah. that you're basically saying people can be saved by works, or at least, at least yeah. in a very limited sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, we see that Old Testament saints look forward to the promises. Um, and there's an article from Banner of Truth, just um, two different two dispensations, one salvation, um, they talk about Calvin. They say, the, quote, The promise of Christ to come, says Calvin, was present throughout the Old Testament period. Towards its close, the people's expectation was heightened by Malachi's prediction, the Son of Righteousness shall rise, Malachi 4.2. By these words, comments Calvin, God teaches us that while the law held the godly in expectation of Christ's coming, his actual arrival would bring them more light. It is as if they saw him afar off while we see him near. John the Baptist links the two dispensations, marking the end of one and the beginning of the other, end quote. So we know that Christ wasn't revealed explicitly um, like, he, it, like he was in the new covenant or, or when he came on the scene, but they saw him in the, in the types and shadows that were to come. Israelites saw him in the uh, sacrifices, in the, in the priestly system that was there um, in in Israel. Abraham saw him in the promise that God gave him that he would come uh, or that he would make him uh, the father of many nations. And Galatians even says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. But Abraham believed these promises of God, and he was saved. He was accredited as righteous, as Genesis 15 talks about. So we, we see them... They, they, they didn't know Christ explicitly like we do. Christ revealed the Father clearly when he came as the Word uh, in the flesh, but um, they saw him in the promises. Um, and so they were saved the same way we were. They look forward to it, and we, we basically are looking back, um, but pointing to the same Christ, to the same one who would fulfill those promises in the Old Testament, and we see them as fulfilled, and we um, look back to that by faith. But it was the same faith, That justified them
1: exactly from a dispensational perspective i don't even understand how they can read romans chapter four because paul's whole argument is hey look abraham was justified by faith that's how we know that we are justified by faith and if there are two separate systems of salvation in place then what sense does it make to appeal to a uh, old testament saint to say oh yeah uh you shouldn't be a legalist because um abraham was justified by faith it it doesn't make any sense uh you'd expect him to start talking about if he were to use any example at all to use a a new testament example not an old testament example but we are justified in the exact same way abraham was and that's how uh, paul is able to use him as an example
0: yeah and he even goes beyond that to say look you're a jew and you want to claim abraham as your father look he believed by faith before he was circumcised so you can't claim him as your father only and that you're you're a father of abraham through circumcision you know he was he believed by faith before he was circumcised so that he could be the father not only of the jews but of the gentiles who believe by faith as well so it's i mean he's unifying both bodies of people under the same head if you will the same spiritual ancestor you know you had the jews abraham was their physical ancestor and for the gentiles he's our spiritual father um yeah that's that's a very good point yep
1: all right did you have any other things you wanted to say or shall we move on no we can move on to paragraph seven all right it's a very short paragraph Christ, in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Uh, and I do want to read one of the examples uh, given so that we have something to react against. Sure. Uh, so one of the proof texts is Acts twenty twenty eight pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So here, um the blood is being um, attached to God. Right. And well, we, we know that God doesn't have blood in his divinity as to his right. humanity. He does, but, um but oh i lost my train of thought there um (laughs) uh to so we've got to be very careful about um attributing human aspects to the divine nature even though scripture Mm. will, will will do this sometimes it's right to say god's own blood um because there's there's a sense in which obviously jesus is god so it's god's own blood but to his divinity he does not have blood, and if you start mixing those things you end up in what's called eutychianism which is the mixture of the two natures the human and the divine the issue being if you start mixing the natures all of a sudden you're left with a jesus who isn't quite divine and isn't quite man and that gets back to the problem of how can this this jesus save us if he's not if he's something above man because he's got divine mixed into his nature um, he's not. He's not able to be our substitute. And if he's not God, he's not able to bear the wrath appropriately.
0: Then he's really no better than like the Greek gods, you know, like um, Zeus or, or whatever, who were not pure act, pure divine beings, but were not really men either. They were just kind of in the middle, superhumans, I guess. Um, you don't have a a, a true, definitive, distinguished um, set of natures exactly. that you see. But yeah, no that that's a very good point. And then you have the two other extremes. You have Arianism, which uh, basically denies the divinity of Christ completely and makes him out to be a man. Then you had the Monophysites, who basically said, no, we don't really go with Jesus's you know divinity. We we think he's more, uh, or I'm sorry, his um, his humanity. But we're going to overemphasize his divinity. So there, you know, you have the two extremes as well. Um, but yeah, Jesus acted according to both natures. Jesus, uh, I think uh, we see instances of this where Jesus um, Jesus wept. Um, Jesus was hungry. Jesus slept. He acted as a man fully. Um, but then we see him healing people. We see him claiming to be God and then backing up his claims with miracles, um, forgiving people's sins, things that... Um, only God can do in and of himself. Even the prophets couldn't do, even though they worked miracles, they couldn't do these things on their own. They had to have the power of God behind them. Jesus was actually showing, proving his, uh, that he was from the Father and that he was God by his miracles, raising people from the dead, things like that. Um, so acting according to both natures, but he never, he never mixed them. They were never mixed. Very, very important to to distinguish those two. Yes. Doke. So our final par- or did you have anything else, Sean? No, that was it. Okay. So the final paragraph we're going to look at today um, is paragraph eight. Um, this, is, this is a very important one as well. It says to all those uh who I'm sorry, to all those for whom Christ had hath ordained eternal redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit revealing unto them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty word, or by his almighty power and wisdom, in such manner and ways as are most consonant, to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation, and all of free and absolute grace, without any condition foreseen in them to procure it so this really goes to the heart of what it means to be a particular baptist um and when we say we are particular baptists we're talking we're, we're saying that christ and this is historical particular baptist they believe that christ died for a particular people it wasn't a as opposed to the general baptist which held that there was a general redemption uh, that christ applied to all men Um, We believe that Christ died for a particular people and that his work was only applied to a particular people and not to um, people in general, um, as the synergists believe. So uh, I think this is very, very important. And there are implications for this worldview um, as well. Um, if, If a synergist believes that Christ died for every human being there is and all that they have to do is simply just accept it or believe it based on their autonomous free will. um, How does that really uphold God's justice and and truthfulness at that point? Doesn't that mean that Jesus, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus's atonement really wasn't complete if you reject Christ and then you go to hell, even though Jesus supposedly died for your sins and satisfied the full wrath of god you know if you, that that's a problem you know it, when jesus said it is finished apparently it wasn't for those people because they're still getting the wrath of god for rejecting that which allegedly was done already yeah um, i think that's obviously, a problem
1: obviously there's there's multiple views of the atonement um so specifically for someone who recognizes that biblical atonement that is substitution jesus Mm -hmm. was a substitute for our sins they're going to be run into a lot of problems if they are synergists because essentially jesus did die for your specific sins but you're still going to go to hell and get them and you're going to pay for them yourself anyway yeah and then people might say like oh well um uh, he died for every single sin except for the sin of unbelief. It's like so now we have a Jesus that didn't die for all sins because that's that's a major problem. And nowhere in the New Testament do I see anything that would say that Jesus didn't die for all sin.
0: Yeah, um, and then how does that how does that give security to the believer who does believe? If he didn't, if his work didn't accomplish it for the guy yeah. who rejected what was allegedly done to him, how in the world is a believer going to have assurance that? Yeah. The work well, was applied to him and his sins were satisfied.
1: <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're gonna say that Jesus um paid for your sins and then somebody goes to hell and pays for it, you're essentially saying, Oh yeah, double jeopardy. You can have two people pay for the same sins. So yeah, at that point it's like, Well, what assurance is there that Jesus truly paid for my sins if I can still pay for it myself, you know? Right
0: yeah it, it's it's a problem and and I don't think that synergists would would um necessarily at least the ones that believe in substitutionary atonement. I don't think that they would necessarily uh hold to that distinctly. that they, they do believe no. that Jesus's work actually accomplished something but yeah you know it's the logical conclusion of their argument um, yeah. yeah so it's then, something something to think about
1: yeah that's why you get most synergists or maybe not most um obviously my evidence for how many believe what is anecdotal i don't have statistics about how many synergists believe what but right you do seem to run into most synergists and they don't who don't believe in substitutionary atonement they've got something else going on because essentially that, that is what you have to do you have to deny that uh the issue being the rest of the scriptures clearly teach a substitutionary atonement
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you have guys like um, Charles Finney that did not believe in substitutionary oh, atonement, yeah. um, even though he was a Presbyterian, but at least for, well, for a time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> fin- Finney's an interesting guy. Apparently, he had never read the Westminster Confession of Faith when he was being interviewed by, um, I guess, whatever the board was that was going to...
0: Major um, oversight on the board.
1: <laughs> well, Well, so that's the thing, right? The board asked him, if he had read or they asked him if he had disagreed with anything in it and he responded because he'd never read it to my knowledge there's nothing in there that i disagree with so the, the board was was satisfied with that answer um later he read it and was horrified with what he read in there <laughs> uh, which is why maybe they should have been a little bit more meticulous in what they Yeah, did. you'd think
0: um yeah i was actually reading about him last night i was reading about william wilberforce because i'm I'm um, gonna be teaching on that in church next. Oh, okay. I'm covering him, but I I read ahead in in uh, uh Blackburn's book and talking about Finney, and I was surprised. I was like, Okay, you're he said he he taught in the Presbyterian church even after he had major uh, disagreements, but then he realized later that he was actually a major disagreement and then he left. Yeah. But he had some weird views like did de- denied substitutionary atonement, he came to believe in sinless perfectionism. Um, well very well, weird stuff. People
1: will throw around the label plagian a lot, but to be honest, from what I've seen of Finney and he was obviously. I'm, yeah, he was a plagian. Oh uh,
0: absolutely.
1: Uh, yeah, because he said essentially that we save ourselves. And by our own free will. I mean, um <laughs> I don't I don't remember specifically, but yeah, essentially he said we save ourselves. And at that point, the yeah, um I I'm okay with saying he was probably a plagian. Yeah. Yeah. He, he had some problems. I mean, Jacob Rominius did the same thing.
0: You know, he taught in the, uh, I, I think he was Dutch Reformed, if I remember, yes. but he continued to teach there even after he had major disagreements with doctrinal beliefs. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand why you would do that, but
1: uh, okay. Um, But yeah, I, I think Arminius might have viewed himself as a little bit of a reformer in of himself. Mm. So he was trying to reform the church within. Uh, I don't know that to be honest. I I haven't looked that much into Arminius, but okay. That's sort of the impression I get.
0: Okay. Um okay, well I guess we'll uh We'll kind of close with this. This is a quote from um, this month's Table Talk on page 38. It says, Non-reformed Christians have a noble intent in believing that Jesus atoned for the sins of all people, for they want to magnify God's love and grace. Ultimately, however, they reduce his power and they make his love nonspecific. Though the Lord can do all, he, all that he wills, then he has a specific love for his people that he does not have for everyone. The Reformed doctrine thus magnifies the glory, power, and love of God. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. Um, Next week, we will be deviating from our series in the confession. Um, Our plan is to respond to um, a video that Leighton Flowers did uh, where he responded to our very first podcast episode in which we critiqued one of his articles. Um, I had posted that on the page not too long ago. Uh, but we plan to do a response to that. Uh, We won't be responding to the entire video that he did, but we want to focus on some specific points. Um, So we hope to, Lord willing, do that next week. Uh, But until then, uh, everybody take care, and we will see you guys next week. God bless you all.